Hi everyone, and welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast, where we interview teachers, authors, scientists, and both longtime meditators and folks who are new to the practice. And this week, I'm delighted to share with you an interview with my friend Julia Ryman. Julia and I met several years ago, and over that time, we've become friends, and she's become a regular expert contributor to AboutMeditation.com. And I wanted to take some time to talk to Julia a little bit about her story, which is really interesting, how she got into meditation. So without further ado, let's jump into this interview with Julia Ryman. So Julia, welcome to the show. It is so great to have you on here. Ah, I'm excited to do this, Morgan. This is going to be fun. Awesome. So everybody, I've known Julia for, I think we met, was it at the Copy Blogger Conference that in 2013 or 14? Yeah, yeah. I don't remember the year, but that's where we met. Yeah. And, it's been and, a while. Yeah, it has been a while. And we've been like fellow freelancers. And then we discovered we had a shared mutual interest in meditation and yoga. And then we just stayed in touch. And then one thing led to another, and Julia became one of our thought leaders on the website and writes a, a regular column for about meditation. And so I really wanted to invite Julia on to, to share a little bit more about her story, and, and I think that's where we're going to jump in. We do this with, with most of our guests. I'd love to just start, pan way back, start at the beginning, and, and just maybe share a little bit of your experience, how did you become a meditator? Where where did it start? And yeah, go been, as far back as you want. <laughs> well, I've been thinking about this, and it's hard to know where the starting point is. In in some ways, I can go so far back to say that I was probably wired for it just from coming into the earth. But mm. one starting point I can think about it starts with uh, an old. A boyfriend of mine back in college, and we were going to, after we graduated, take a trip across the U.S., and we were going to drive around and do a big tour, and I um, worked and saved money for that and was all excited that we would uh, set a date and get in his pickup truck and drive yeah. around the U.S., only he um, did not come through. He didn't save the money. He wasn't oh, ready no. to do it, and so I, I was complaining to a friend of mine that now I wouldn't do this trip around the U.S. And she said, well, why would you, that, why would that stop you? You could still take a trip. Yeah. And I said, well, I, I wouldn't be, want to go around the U.S. I was only doing that because that's what he wanted. And so she pulled out this gigantic map of the world and laid it down on the floor. And we started looking at this this colorful map on the floor of all the different countries in the world. And she said, well, if you could go anywhere, where would you want to go? And I looked all, you know, all the different possibilities. And for some reason, I said I wanted to go to Nepal. Wow. And without, and then it was completely naive. I mean, I hardly knew anything about it. Um, but I had had one friend who had talked about trekking in Nepal. And I think we probably even had to figure out where Nepal was on the map because I knew so little about it. And so I took the money that I had saved to go around the U.S. And um, I had heard you could buy 
one-way tickets really cheap to India when you go to London. So I bought, uh, I mean, you could buy, uh, excuse me, you could buy tickets to India from London. Mm. And so I bought a one-way ticket to London to find these imaginary cheap tickets to India. (laughs) And I made my way to Nepal and got there. Did you get the cheap tickets? (laughs) <laughs> that was a whole story, too. Oh, right. um, I found a travel agent in London who supposedly had cheap tickets. He was an Italian man and smoked tons of cigarettes. And I would go to his place and say, I want to have a ticket to Nepal. And um, he'd smoke a lot of cigarettes and tell me he, could, he was working on it, but he didn't have a, a ticket for me ready. And I that I should come back the next day. And I came back day after day. There was no ticket showing up. Sounds but very meanwhile, Italian. Yes, exactly. But meanwhile, I noticed a, a trend that a number of beautiful blonde women would come in, get their tickets and walk out. And um, I didn't fit that type. Mm. And so I began to think that there was something else going on in his travel agency. Yes. <laughs> so made a stink to get my ticket. And um, he eventually did give me a ticket, but it, it, it turned out to only be a partial ticket. It got me as far as Bangladesh, and then I had to kind of reschedule to make my way to Nepal. It was an adventure just making my way to Nepal, wow. starting in London. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so, you went to Nepal. Yes. So, I got to Nepal, and I trekked around Nepal. And at the end of it, I had planned to go to India. And I had the name of a friend, a friend of a friend, and it was, so it's a very thin connection. Her yeah. name was Nava, very yeah. thin connection. Who and she was at an ashram in Rishikesh. And so after trekking in Nepal, I made my way to Rishikesh to find this friend of a friend, and she wasn't too interested in me. But there at that ashram, that was the moment because I was there. I didn't know anyone. She wasn't interested in me and I didn't know what to do with myself. And every evening at this ashram, they would give Dharma talks. And I started going to those. And that was what changed everything for me. Mm. And I think that the one I remember, it's so simple when I look back on it now, but um, it posed the question. They said, well, when you are awake, you know you're awake and you and you know that that's real. But when you're in a dream, that dream seems real. So how do you know what's actually real? And that question started me on a, a kind of a lifetime search of where's truth, what's real, you know, what is consciousness, what, you know, and trying to put all these pieces together. And yeah. I remember thinking, that was so significant to me. What? How do we know? What, yes. What is real? Yeah. And I think everything else kind of came from that moment. Well, it's like almost like a koan. Yeah, I like guess. Like a Zen koan. Yeah. That's a very, I mean, obviously it's a very powerful question. And, and just as an aside, mm-hmm. I, I've been to Rishikesh a few times in India. Uh-huh. And every time it blew my mind. India blows my mind. I mean, India, every time, well, actually, I think I've only been there twice, but the two times that I went to India, each time I felt like from the moment I landed, that I was in an altered state of consciousness, that I was in some sort of meditative field, and that it wasn't, that it didn't necessarily come from within. It was more like the place was saturated in this field of surrender 
some sort of、yeah. deep kind of surrender. And then, if, and, you know, if you've ever been in India and traffic, you know that <laughs> there is there is surrender. <laughs> you have to, you know, there's just this、yeah. sort of flow and like no stoplights or like signage. There's just like, how do people survive?、But、yeah. That's, yeah,、there's、so a, that's amazing. There's surrender so much there. I remember、um, they had a woman who would sing in the evenings, and her, her voice was、mm. the most beautiful music I had ever heard. And when you hear these kind of extreme statements, I mean, it's easy to just think, you know, it was a moment and maybe I was projecting or something, but it's more like what you describe. Where the place is just saturated with、yeah. this other something. Yeah. And so when you're open to it, things come through powerfully, both from the beautiful side and then from the horror, too.、Yeah. So you see ugliness and beauty side by side,、yeah. you know, in its fullness of experience. Yes. And、um, I found that so rich and.、Uh, For me, really profound and, and changing, you know,、mm. to be able to see all of human experience just with no filters, nothing、yeah. covering it.、Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 People say that a lot about India that you have the horror and the, the kind of grandeur of humanity、yeah. right next to each other, like literally just side by side. And yeah. And another thing, just to note for everybody, that Rishikesh is considered one of the holiest cities in India. And it's part of the reason for that is there's just all these, there's all these ashrams. And there's,、mm. it's, it's a place where all these holy men and women come to practice and to come on retreat. And I mean, that, so that was my experience. Both times、mm. I went for like a, a two week meditation retreat. And, and it's on the side of, oh, excuse go me. Go for it. Yep. It's on the side of the Ganges as well, which is、yes. a holy river. Yeah. So you have that running through Rishikesh. Yeah. Totally. And you'd think it'd be like, it, it is very peaceful, but not in the way you think about it. It's like, <laughs>、no. like there's a constant din, even on the other side of the river where all the ashrams are, which is like, You know, then the river's wide, so it's, f- it's far away from all the rickshaws and the traffic and all the vendors and whatnot.、Mm-hmm. But even if you're sitting there in meditation, there's a kind of constant din outside. And,、mm. and nevertheless, though, there's the same experience that's even, it's even more, it's just amplified there of meditation, of deep stillness, like abiding stillness, like a stillness that's never not been there. That's the, Powerful thing about being there, right? You just you、mm-hmm. kind of feel this sort of infinity or limitlessness just、mm-hmm. of the ground of being. Like there's an ancient quality to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't know. I don't know if this has anything,、yeah. but it, I'm reminded when I stayed there, I found this room. And I, in my mind, it was just hardly more than just a cement. Block, you know, it had cement floors and, and cement walls. So, I, and、um, if I remember, there was a window cut, but I don't even remember that there was glass. It was more like just a hole in the wall. And I only had some、um, blankets to sleep on. And on the walls, someone had painted a very psychedelic 60s kind of rainbow f- sun coming up kind of painting、yeah. on the wall. 
And so I, I slept there with this rainbow sun next to me in this funny little cube room. And my bedding in the morning, I rolled up the bedding. And then underneath the bedding one morning was a scorpion who had oh. been sleeping under there for my body heat. And so oh my there's God. this quality of like in Rishikesh? Uh, rainbow sunshine. Yeah, rainbow sunshine. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, many years ago, but that's my memory, rolling yeah. up the bedding and seeing the scorpion run out from underneath it huh. and think, wow. <laughs> I slept on that all night. Contrast. <laughs> that is crazy. Well, I, yeah. I, I knew yeah. the thing is, and as soon as you said, as soon as you said window, of course, it brought back the memory for me of the monkeys, which were yeah. ubiquitous, yeah. right? The, and coming yeah. in and like, you know, they could yeah. be quite menacing, you know. Yeah, they'll, they'll yeah, really exactly. come in, in the, if you have food and whatnot, and you, you know, you have to like, you have to be on guard. And they yeah. come in packs, and they they'll yeah. range along the edge of the ashram buildings, yeah. you know, going up along the edges, and then they'll scoot down the sides, and then go up the next one, and that, and then like you, you know, you have to be on guard. Yeah, yeah. But okay, so we'll leave India. And, yes, which is a nice reverie there to, to yes. go back and and all right. So you you th this kind of experience set you on a path. It sounds like in the in this sort of Cohen like question about the nature of what's real and what's a dream and you know everything in between. All right. So like a couple questions I have. Then what kind of meditation did you eventually pick up when you came back to the states? Like. Did you start meditating soon after that? When did that become a part of your sort of tool set for responding to that question? Yeah. So there were a number of false starts and, you know, little uh, sampler things that I did. And eventually I would say one of the, my most influential practices that came out of that was um, a practice that was a combination of Native American practices and Buddhist practices. It was an organization called Sunray. Mm. And a story that was told was that in the 60s, the native elders got together and said that a number of the practices were so important to the world that they needed to be opened up to the non-native community. But there were certain practices they wanted to keep secret and uh, closed for the native community. And that bringing in Buddhism sort of supplemented that gap. Got it. And so the spiritual leader, Dahani Oahu, was recognized as both a native leader and a Buddhist leader. Oh, and wow. Yeah, yeah. Recognized by... <laughs> in by, terms of the... Yeah. <laughs> now there's the question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Um, in terms of the native community, you know, it was recognized by uh, native elders that she would bring in every summer. There would be an elders gathering. Yeah. And so there'd be native practices. And then the Buddhist line at that time wasn't very interesting to me. And so and um, to this day, I can't speak uh, really intelligently about the Fair um, enough. Yeah. Buddhist Not practices. Sure. But I do know that there would be in the middle of our the piece of land that she has where we, there would be native, there is an 
fire pit set up and a place where you would have the gatherings. And then there was also a Buddhist stupa set up and various Buddhist things. So you would have both side by side. Yeah. And um, the practices that we did there, there was a meditation that was really fairly elaborate. Mm. There were um, energy centers that more or less correspond to the chakras. And you would do go through each energy center and there would be a visualization and there would be a chant. And then you kind of move through the energy centers and then you would sort of weave them together. And at the end, there'd be another chant with drumming. And it was this kind of elaborate practice. And then there was also um, a practice that we did that was, it was called the Dance of the Four Directions, and it was um, a physical practice where there was chanting, but then there was also something you might say like a dance. Yeah. And for me, doing this full body experience that involved not only sitting, but chanting, and in the case of the dance, moving, that felt so whole to me. I mean, I just couldn't get enough of it. So yeah. that was my one of my first practices. And to be honest, looking back, <laughs> I did not understand at all what we were doing. And I think I confused the state of confusion with the state of enlightenment, I thought the the less I understood, the more spiritual I must be because uh, it was so esoteric, you yeah, know? Yeah. And looking back, um, I was so enthralled by, with it and so moved by it. And yet now there were so many things I can think back that I was never clear if we were discussing metaphor or reality. Like I barely understood what we were doing, but I couldn't stop doing it. So kind of looking back, I've kind of pieced together what some of the practices were and what probably some of the things meant. But at the time, it didn't matter to me. I just wanted to do it. And um, I wanted to do it. I couldn't stop doing it. Yes. So that was kind of my first real practice. Yeah. And I mean, one thing just, it it seems like as you were talking about, I mean, it just makes me think, I mean, it's an interesting coalescence or, or kind mm-hmm. of merging of these two practices, the the traditional Native American spiritual practices and, the, and, and ceremonies and, and rituals and the Buddhist cosmology and, and, and practices and whatnot. And what, like there is a, there is a precedent for that with Tibetan Buddhism, mm-hmm. because before I think it was, Padma Sambhava wasn't he the one that went from India to Tibet and China and whatnot? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, and then, of course, the Tibetan line of Buddhism has become one of the most storied, the richest holders of the the sacred wisdom in in Buddhism and a big contributor to the like the the turning of the wheel. You know, the Buddhist cosmology and they 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 really are like to me. I think of them as just sort of like a powerhouse in terms of Tibetan and Dzogchen and the Buddhist lineages. and But I felt like when you go to the history of it, it was before Buddhism came there, they were also more of an animistic tribal culture, mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. more based in 
the land and their and their gods and goddesses were much more ber- like earth earth based spirits and whatnot, and mm. more of an indigenous tribal culture. And then that fused with Buddhism, and then you have this incredibly powerful dynamic between those giving yielding this tremendous lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. And so I, that's what I was thinking about when you talked mm-hmm. about. You mm-hmm. know, yeah. Your experience. Yeah. There's, there's obviously a, some sort of deep sympathy between those two, and, and mm-hmm. but anyways, yeah, that's that's, yeah. that's an interesting story. And then, yeah, how, and how old were you when you started doing that? And then, and how did that? Where did you go from there? I probably was still in my uh, my late twenties then, yeah. so still young. Yeah. So where that went? Well, so what, the practice. I, I realize I have one question before you go to like what's next. Mm-hmm. Up until this point in your own trajectory, had you had any sort of significant spiritual experiences or, or transformational experiences through your exposure to these different practices or, or was that to come? Because um, obviously something was keeping you going with all this. Besides, so yeah. I guess I'm wondering, what do you mean by um, transformative experiences? An experience of of awareness beyond your mind, where you felt connected to something that was much, much bigger than you, and that you realized when you had that experience that you'd never had that experience before, and that yeah. you realized there there is something beyond the mind i guess that could be one way to say it the other would just be like yeah. a an experience of of quote unquote god or spirit for lack of a better yeah. word yeah and if you so, haven't no problem i'm yeah. just curious because you, you've continued on this yeah so i would say there was probably a number of experiences but the, in answer to your question one thing that comes to mind when i was there Eventually, I tried to move to Vermont to join this spiritual community. And I was there for about um, six months. And we moved there in the fall. I had two young kids and and my my partner. Yeah. And we moved into an unheated, uninsulated garage that someone was renting with kind of promises that it was going to become insulated and heated. But the cold weather came and the um, promises were delayed. So we <laughs> in Vermont, no less. In Vermont, so winter started coming, and we lived in pretty horrendous situation. We tried to move a composting toilet in there because we're a family, and we did have access to a bathroom in the house, but it meant walking outside, you know, over snow to get into the house, and yeah. So there were many ways from the outside looking in that things were pretty bad for us. My partner had a job that that he just hated. We did not have a lot of money. We were desperately cold um and we were ended up as a family. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. We ended up as a family getting really really sick. Yeah. And so sick like little house on the prairie kind of sick where all of us were so sick and the only way to heat the place was in a wood burning stove which was almost barely more than a 50 gallon drum with a hole cut in it to put the wood inside, oh, you know, my a chimney. God. 
And so community members had to come and they actually, when we were all so sick, brought our pile of wood into the house so that all we had to do was kind of roll out a bed and pour more wood into the stove and not have yeah. to go outside and get it. Yeah. And and in this, um, this... Wow, this is the cost of idealism. Yeah, yeah that is a good way to put it. I mean, I, and, I know it from my own experience, but... The, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So my partner hated it, absolutely was falling apart. My relationship was falling apart. And in the middle of that, I was ecstatically happy. And that is so weird for me to say now, but I couldn't think of a place I wanted to be more at that moment. Wow. I loved everything about it. I loved being in the hills of Vermont. I loved the challenge of it. I loved being in that community. And I watched everything around me falling apart. And I felt content. Not that people were unhappy, that didn't please me, but that everything at the end of the day was okay. It, yeah. it was a state of being I had never been in before. And, and maybe you could say I haven't been in since, that there was something so more than the reality that I was living on earth. There was something so beyond that. Yeah. That all these things could be happen and I would just deal with them. It was just the next thing that was happening. And then I would just do the next thing that needed to be done. And it was somehow detached from yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. What, whatever human, you know, reaction you would normally have to that. Yeah. I can remember being on the phone with my friends back home and they could not put it together. How, and I'm as sincerely happy. And it, everything I described to them about what was going on around us was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I... H how old were your kids again? I can... Oh, yeah, under five? Yeah. Yeah. I bathed kids. them. I got a big plastic bin yeah. and, and I'd pour hot water in there. And then they were small enough that they could both fit in the big plastic bin. And oh I my God. It's oh, <laughs> yeah. so good. Oh, what a story. And so at the end, of, you know, at the end of this, my partner was so unhappy and it was just ruining my relationship. And we ended up leaving Vermont. And, the, and, and to be honest, also the spiritual community, I mean, this was a whole nother piece we haven't talked about. It was not a healthy spiritual community. So that was also being revealed. Yeah. Um, that it was not a healthy place to interact. And, and that happens so often in spiritual communities. Yeah, And so I left with my family in shambles, my relationship in shambles. And that was like hitting earth hard. You know, I drove out of Vermont. I went back. Uh, we ended up going back to Wisconsin. And that was where that reality hit. And that was that was a hard impact. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But I would, if you're to your original question, having a transformative experience, being able to live that way, and it was, it was not just like a moment. It was not just an evening of idealism. It was not just, um, you know, a kind of euphoric night. You know, it was living something very different. 
than the way we typically live our lives, where I could be part of and present to my external circumstances and be really present with it. And at the same time, not have it cause ripples in me, you yeah. know, that I'd be able yeah. to be beyond those ripples. Yeah. And that, that was a really interesting experience to have in my life. Definitely. It sounds like it. Yeah. And yeah. Child services never came or anything like that. So that was good. Oh, well, I got to <laughs> tell you, that was at some point there were, you know, like that was some of my concerns. Like oh, how, what? How could it not? Yeah. 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 Exactly. I mean, and, and I could, I could see that and calculate that. And, you know, like, it wasn't that I was ignoring what was going on. It wasn't that I was unaware of what's going on. Yeah. It's that I could deal with it and react to it and take the steps that needed to be taken without it becoming hooks to yeah. get hooked yeah. into. Yeah. That's very interesting. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a, that's yeah. a really, that's a great story. And then, so after that, then, or maybe we don't have to go sequentially. When did you then, or do you feel like at a certain point you kind of settled into any one practice? And, and, um, and the, yeah, like yeah. how how is how did it evolve from there? Like how, in in terms of your own practice, I'm trying to figure out to answer. I mean, there's a kind of sequential answer, or either way, yeah. Either way, fine. After that, um, I would almost say that my spiritual practice, it went a little underground. I became involved with the raising of my kids and the being a mom. And I didn't have a practice that was um, an on-the-cushion practice. Yeah, And I felt like my practice was everyday life. And um, I know to strict practitioners, that's often not counted, but I felt like the analogy I use is that you can have, if you think about musicians, right, there's the trained musician who's taken music lessons, and then there's the street musician who kind of teaches themselves, right? And I felt like at the next phase, I became the sort of street meditator, yeah, where my spiritual practice became one of weaving it into my everyday life and sort of less about having a formal practice, less about having a formal spiritual community and more about kind of living whatever I knew about spirituality at that time, you know, like walking the walk, uh, the talk, walking the talk. Yeah. That time, you know, it's it's easy to question myself at that time, you know. There wasn't a lot of external signs that I was doing anything spiritual. So it's really good to feel a bit like an imposter. It's really good Mm -hmm. to feel like I had lost my way or that, um, you know, I wasn't uh, being true to myself or, you you know, like I don't quite know how to put it, but. It, it really, the, the tasks of living became my main focus and how to do those tasks with integrity and richness and, and being authentic to what I knew to be true yeah. about life and love and if there is a kind of God being true to that. 
but not so much cushion time. Yeah. Now, you know, years yes. and years later, I'm, I am part of a Tibetan Buddhist community here. And I do, I do have cushion time now regularly. Yeah. And the meditation is compared to the complexity of where I started with my original practice. This practice feels very simple and sort of fundamental. Yeah. And there's ease in that. But there's also a part of me that feels like um, I don't quite – the question – um, maybe I, I'll come at this from another way. So originally, my practice, my meditation practice was completely linked with spirituality. And this practice is so simple that there, it feels to me like it's a very good healthy practice for a healthy life. Yeah. And it's a healthy way to manage your mind. Yeah. But that spiritual side of it, I can't feel that. And so there's part of me now that the question I'm exploring is whether or not meditation, where is the connection with spirituality? Are they connected or are they separate? And that's kind of the open question in my life right now is uh, what is spirituality? And um, I'm doing this meditation practice, but it doesn't feel hooked together. And uh, so to, I'm kind to some, of to something quote unquote spiritual. Yeah, yeah. So I I feel like as much as I've started with a deeply spiritual attachment, the, it's more now I'm in a very existential place where what was that and where am I going with it now? You know, how much of that was sort of youthful projection? And how much of that was something real that I was feeling. And what I'm finding now is my spiritual connection is so much more subtle and softer mm. that compared to these sort of early ecstatic experiences, um, these, you, they're less flashy. Yeah. Is it, you know, it's not as sexy as it once was, right? So yeah, yeah. Uh, is that a matter of age or am I finding something fundamentally more deeper now? Yeah. And that's the question I'm exploring. And I, my sense is there's something deeper, but I haven't landed on it yet. So it still feels more like a questioning than an answering, <laughs> if that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. all right. I yeah. have a I have a few questions based okay. based on all that. So one, mm -hmm. can you just say a little bit about what this simple practice is? And when you say you feel it's a very healthy practice to be doing, can you also expand on that a little bit? The practice that I'm doing, I, I belong to a, a meditation group, a Tibetan Buddhist meditation group called Turgar. And the person, the monk, in charge, Mingo Wimpache, he has a lot of his, his practices are divided into a kind of a secular side of meditation and then a Buddhist side of meditation. Mm. And the Buddhist side will have all of the traditional um, Buddhist practices and the chanting and the iconography. And then the secular side has the meditation practices 
without all of the Buddhist references. And so on the secular side, you can do meditation practices where you you have a foundation. So it can be a focus on sound. It could be a focus on breathing, a focus on your thoughts so or like emotions. The, that's the shamatha part of exactly, it. Got exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's a for, loving. For, and for everyone, that just means like the calm, calming your mind, bringing it to a calm staying on a particular topic. And, and you may have remembered that from our previous interview. I think it was two back with John Churchill. He talks about that in that practice. All right. Sorry to interrupt. That's that's a good. There is a practice, a loving compassion practice, mm. which would uh, the Tonglen practice where yeah. you, do you have an episode on that? <laughs> that no, you want to talk about? <laughs> Tonglen, no, but I know about Tonglen. I, may, I can't remember if we, we did this with Richard Klein, maybe it is a, a previous interview, but yes, please say a little bit about Tonglen. You know, there's various ways you can do it, but basically you're wishing for someone that they are happy and that they are relieved of suffering. And so typically it's done with the breath and you may do, there's different methods of doing it, but so you may inhale, may they be free from suffering and exhale. I'm sorry, let me start again. You can like inhale and sort of take in their suffering and exhale where you sort of wish them well. The way that I'll do it is you'll do it with kind of a phrase where you say, may they be um, happy and free from suffering. And you can do this with people that you know, people that you love, people that um, you find difficult. Um, and you can even do it with yourself. Yes. And so it's a way of seeing the humanity in everyone that we're all just doing our best and that we're all here. We're all just trying to live our lives. We're all just trying to be happy. We're all just trying to avoid situations that make us uncomfortable. And it's kind of wishing everyone well. And it can kind of help soften your heart towards people yes. at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. So you, so you do, those are two. And then those are two. There's other practices that you do where you, it's sort of um, meditating on the nature of reality. And those I don't do as often. Yeah. So probably my, those two are probably my fundamental practices that I'm doing right now. And they are, like you said, the first one is calming your mind. And the second one is building loving compassion for the people around you and for the world. Yeah. And, and, and yes, go ahead. Well, no, I'm trying to remember your original question where you asked about what I'm doing now. Is that? And then you yeah. had said that you refer to these practices as as healthy practices and what i wanted to know could you expand on that what did you yeah mean? so some of what i'm referring to there is reflected on um kind of in the outside world and the way that uh, meditation and buddhist meditation in particular has become so popular in the public. Yeah. And often meditation now is perceived as the antidote for all sorts of problems, you know, stress and anxiety and depression and, and all. And so it's generally seen as sort of mental hygiene. You know, it's the good practice that you do to keep yourself happy and, and um, content. And so when I say that these practices seem healthy, Part of what I'm referring to is that, that they're yeah. just a good idea for yeah. people. Yeah. And P that's part of like self care, general exactly. self care. Yeah. Exactly. 
And it's so common now. I mean, I'll talk to people of all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of religions and all sorts of professions. And to ask people how their meditation practice is going, often they don't bat an eye and have an answer for you. It's just like a really common, considered a very common way to take care of yourself. Totally. Yeah. And so when I said that these practices seem healthy, from that vantage point, these practices that I'm given are really good, healthy, solid practices. But I never meditated for health. And so that's where it gets confusing for me. Is this something that I do like exercising and eating well and meditating in that category? Or is meditation a category where I reach some sort of deeper spiritual connection with something beyond myself? And that's where it gets a little confusing to me about, well, what is meditation and um, where does it fit into my life now? Yeah. Yeah. Those are powerful questions. And when you were talking, I, I, I certainly had a lot of responses to what you were saying. And some of them, like to me, I mean, because obviously those are important questions for Mm -hmm. all of us. And obviously they're important questions for you, but what part of what I was also hearing is like, at least I know in my, in the, in the community that I was in, we had this emphasis that really experience didn't matter. It was the most important thing was just to get on the cushion and practice to, mm-hmm. to, to practice, to practice, to practice, and just let go and trust that the practice was doing a sort of work that you, you know, as long as you were following the, your instructions, there was a work that you were doing that mm-hmm. was inherently spiritual. And, mm-hmm. and, and um, I, so part of me feels like, all right, like I could never, I, I guess like part of me thinks anyways that we're spirit first, that we're spirit before we're incarnate. And that, and I, I don't have any proof of that, but it's, I'm not sure we need proof of that. I think it's more, for me, it's a conviction. So then when I think about like reality in general, I think sometimes those distinctions can get tricky uh, around like, well, what's spiritual and what's not? You know, if if the fundamental context for life is inherently spiritual, then how do you say meditation is or isn't spiritual? And I'm not trying Mm -hmm. to do like some metaphysical gymnastics or sidestepping here. It's just like, to me, it's an interesting question. And then, but then, so that's one thing. And then I also think about like the frames and the categories and the, and the, and the, and the ways in which our culture is still struggling to integrate meditation. And obviously you and I having been born and grown up in the West, we've got all these lenses, you know, we've mm-hmm. got Cartesian coordinate system <laughs> imprinted on our beings. And like, so like, and then, you know, the distinctions are, they often are are hard, and it's it, for us. I think it's sometimes harder to get in, like for those lines to soften, and and to see. Okay, well, maybe I don't have to have a spiritual feeling when I meditate for it to be mm. inherently spiritual, and, and mm-hmm. maybe maybe that's just not. Maybe it is the right way to look at it, but maybe it's not, mm-hmm. and, and like maybe that's not actually the right question to be asking because it can kind of put limits on the practice where we don't need to put limits 
on the practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder about that sometimes. But on the flip side, they're they're great questions to be asking. I, I like to I like to ask those questions. Just even when I like before I meditate, I pray, and I like to ask questions to like spirit or God or my capital S self. You know, mm-hmm. like just mm-hmm. about what the hell are you? You know, mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. Who's to say God is is out there or in here or everywhere? It's like, I think the questions are really so important. So I really liked when you framed it at a certain point that you're living with a lot of these questions. That almost seems like the most important things, right? Like Rilke mm-hmm. had this quote about, you know, it's important to live with these questions. I can't remember the quote, but that living with the questions is much more important than having the answers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense. I know I was a, I was all over the place there, but it was just some of my responses to what you said. And I think what you're saying too points to something I was touching on earlier, where the experiences now part of the problem with problem, you know, part of the experience of having a kind of ecstatic opening like yeah. I sort of did, right? Yeah. Is that one then begins to grasp for that. Totally. Right. That becomes the standard. Yeah. And anything less than that is considered lesser or not right. You yeah. Know? Yeah. On the other hand, having a, a a grand opening like what I had was really cemented this search in my life, right? Yeah. It really was so profound and so significant. So you know, but it's just how it was for me. But one of the things is like I said, now meditating when things feel more subtle and things feel a yeah. little less flashy. Yeah. To be able to see that. I totally relate to this, that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I definitely. Yeah. Yeah. To see that as whole, that, that for one thing, to not grasp for something more, right? To not want a different experience than what you're having, but also to see all of these aspects part of the same whole experience, yeah. which is the experience of being conscious in this life, in this body, right? Yeah. So being able to see all of that as, oh, you know, I've part of my experience in this life, in this body was what happened to me when I was young. And part of it, this experience in this life, in this body is what's happening now. And to not as you were suggesting, compare, label, categorize, you know, judge one experience versus the other, but to see it as this whole progression yeah. of, as we go through our time here in this body, you know. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a very eloquent and concise way to put it. I, I like that. And early on, it's like, it's kind of like a, a love affair, right? You, yeah. There's yeah. Like, there's this intense chemistry in the beginning and there's these spiritual fireworks and, and your yeah. heart gets blown open and your mind gets blown open and then you see through everything and you're like, you know, it's yeah. you're like, it's all, it is all a dream, you know? There's yeah. something much bigger <laughs> than all of this and oh my God. And, and then, you know, and then it fades and then maybe you have more of those experiences, but then they don't, you know, their experiences. And I, I do think there's something in what you said that over time it, it does, it becomes more, there's more equanimity. There's more, uh, 
I think what moves me over time is the effort. You know, it's more of the quiet dignity of yeah. abiding and, and and pursuing yeah. a moral uh, life in, over yeah. time. And and that the one of our previous interviews, a guy named Brad Kirshner said, "There's this fallacy of growth to goodness, where you can." grow in your spiritual states like your awakening states can become more vibrant and powerful but it doesn't always that's almost a different line of development than your moral line as a kind caring virtuous mm-hmm. human being and i think those things do get conflated a lot on the spiritual mm-hmm. path and i think we see that with fallen gurus a lot these traditional mm-hmm. Paths you see these gurus who've done these things, and it's like, how? If you're this enlightened being, how are you then doing that? And you know, mm-hmm. in in the bedroom with all these mm-hmm. consorts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he mm-hmm. really brought that out, like the growth to goodness fallacy. And I I think it it relates to what we're talking about that there's a certain just pragmatic effort in living a good life with dignity and style and virtue that mm-hmm. takes a ton of work to mm-hmm. you know to overcome mm-hmm. your own self criticism your own deficiencies and and just to lift yourself up in time and be and be more selfless i i just think it's an interesting relationship between those things and the spiritual fireworks you know that the fireworks mm-hmm. can give you fuel but over time they're not going to mm-hmm. that it only goes so far do you do you agree with that that seems to be my experience anyway yeah yeah and i think you know to sort of point to one of the things that i heard you saying in that is one of the beautiful things and perhaps surprising things for me is how that feeling of love and compassion and tenderness and sweetness towards people just trying to live their life, yeah. how that tends to grow. And that's not as flashy as those original fireworks, like what you're talking about. Yeah. But that becomes such a strong, uh, it's like um, a cradle to hold you in, you know, yeah. like over time giving up my judgmentalism and and being able to see people more sweetly that has been a freedom that I would not want to give up. That has yeah. been so beautiful and such a boon to my life and being able to live a good life, you know, to give up all the ways that um, I, the, the fireworks came with it, at least for me, you know, I, I, there was a, lot of judgment that sort of came with that because it it sort of in me fostered a me versus them thing you know you you either were spiritual or you weren't or you either understood or you didn't i mean there was lots of ways that i divided the world right yeah yeah and um and over time letting that go and and in my case it was not an easy process i had to like 
it was hard knocks <laughs> to make me let go of that, you know. Yeah, yeah. But having gone through that, that is a sweetness that I would not give up. And I think that's what tends to grow. I think that's what you're pointing to and what you're saying, that that piece growing, that giving that, grow, living that good, dignified life, I think that that's a really important piece. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Well, if we had more time, I'd want to, explore this even more deeply but i unfortunately we're getting to the end of yeah. our time together maybe and, we'll do this again sometime yeah i would know <laughs> i would love that and yeah but, but i really enjoyed this it was great to talk yeah. about this and to hear all of your experiences and to hear about your journey and then to also just to riff on a lot of yeah. these topics is really yeah. i really enjoyed it and thank yeah, you thank for, you Morgan. for coming this was on. really fun yeah. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the One Mind Meditation Podcast. If you'd like to connect with Julia directly, then I encourage you to head on over to her website at terratrue.com. That's T-A-R-A-T-R-U-E.com. And I'll link that up in the show notes for this episode over at aboutmeditation.com. So you please, if you enjoyed the episode, go check out her work and connect with her directly. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. That is by far the single best way to help us reach more meditators. So if you enjoyed the show and you believe in what we're doing, you can really help us reach more people by leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes. Also, I encourage you to head on over to aboutmeditation.com where we have a bunch of great courses for both new and intermediate meditators. Folks, if you've been meditating for a couple years or if you're new, we have courses for you. If you if you like the tempo of the podcast, you'll like these courses. So please check them out. And then finally, well, two things. The One Mind Meditation Podcast is part of the Podcastica Network. So I recommend you go check out the network. It's filled with really great shows over at podcastica.com. And as usual, we're going to end with a quote. This is a beautiful quote. It's a quote that came up in my conversation with Julia just now from Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke. And he says, Be patient toward all that is unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then, gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. Mm-hmm.